Marcus Boone is professor of English at York University in Toronto. He's the author of The Road of Excess, A History of Writers on Drugs, In Praise of Copying, and The Politics of Vibration, Music as Cosmopolitical Practice. I was really excited to speak with him about The Politics of Vibration because it's a terrific, dense, complex book. There are so many ways to approach thinking about the beauty, the power, the moving qualities of music and vibration. It's almost cliche. And maybe that's because the glory that we associate with music sort of has connotations of the divine. And so maybe we should start there. Boone doesn't avoid the spiritual aspects of music in his book. He reinforces this sense of the ineffable in sound and vibration. So what does that mean? He relates it to the way that when he has conversations about what music is with colleagues and friends, they'll sometimes claim that he isn't playing fair, meaning that he catches them off guard with ontological questions about something that they experience on an emotional level, at the level of uncomplicated pleasure. They're aware that they don't exactly have a language for what they're experiencing, but aren't ready to concede that this means what they're experiencing is something spiritual. And maybe, and I can only speculate here, because spirituality feels too immaterial to fit our obsessively material and materialistic age. In the same way, though, that Boone was exploring the conflicts between material and supernatural or spiritual in psychedelic drug use with the road of excess, in the politics of vibration, he's invested in working against what he calls a desacralized music aesthetics and toward a framework that includes the rather enticing notion that music is made when we make decisions about how to play with waves, how to craft spaces of feeling through waveforms. If we adopt this more expansive framework, Marcus is saying that we move rather quickly into a world where music is actually asking ontological questions of us. And he explains here how non-European cultures of music have an intuition and a technical expertise in this, that the pursuit of target states through music is not a foreign concept in many cultures. The idea of tapping into the vibration of the land in many indigenous musical pathways is a vital practice, for example, in a settler colonial context where finding meaning and belonging in spite of alienation and disconnection is an urgent matter. Beyond that, it's clear to Boone that many people integrate music in their lives as a tool to resist what he terms the dominant time regime of neoliberal global capitalism, in which we're in many ways compelled to sacrifice the tempo, rhythm, and temporality of our lives to a regime that imposes profit-driven structures from outside. So the way Boone approaches the question of music is both philosophical and political, but it's also very personal. He talks about how music holds you up, it allows you to find courage in dark times, bathes you in a kind of lightness and supportiveness. Music can be restorative for us as individuals and motivating for us in collectives. Some music, he says, impinges on you. And in some scenes of music, in particular, he says house music, hip hop, punk, some experimental music, impinges on us a little bit more powerfully because the people embedded in it feel it in a less fearful way, in a way that more openly embraces all of the ways that sound can shape us. He gravitates to those scenes where folks are less fearful of the embodied effects of music and the possibilities of sound. Whether you have that intense devotion to sound or are just curious, here's my conversation with Marcus Boone talking about vibration as a way of understanding the composition of the universe 
and a way to access questions of being itself. I don't even know where to begin. Maybe we'll start with the, the final chapter of the book where there's this moment where you, you quote a part of Kendrick Lamar's Mortal Man, where you know Kendrick says, in my opinion, uh, the only hope that we kind of have left is music and vibrations. And you basically say, like, that's how you feel. Um, and that resonated with me, this idea that um, not just any commitment to sound, but as the book says, like an intense commitment to sound is genuinely transformative. Um, but it's it's for you more about, you know, not just a personal commitment to sound. And I don't think that's what Kendrick Lamar is saying either. Um, what you're arguing, in a sense, is that there are certain scenes and cultures that because of a really intense commitment to sound, to music, they might, as you say, have something to say to us about what, what you're calling vibrational ontology. Um, and, and so my first question is really about whether you feel like Western commercial music cultures up to and including this rigid culture of classical music that you talk about in the beginning of the book, um, leave enough space for the creation of these like really intense commitments to music or if like the colonial uses of music, which have tried to privilege a specific approach, a pretty rigid approach as a kind of meta language, um, whether those shut down some of the possibilities of vibrational ontology, because like so much of your book is also trying to think about it, the informal and the improvisational. Yeah. Where do you see a vibrational ontology emerging, I guess, as a way of thinking about it? Yeah, it's a tricky question, right? Because obviously... You know, you do have a history of Western classical music and things like that, where there is a very intense devotion to sound and to music. Mm-hmm. And yet, in certain ways, I guess you you also can feel a kind of intense fear of music that surrounds those scenes. And even the sort of, I don't know, the apparatus of the concert hall and the rituals that surround the, the concert hall and even the, the opera, um, they sort of indicate that music is this sort of hot thing that is dangerous to, to handle and that you really need to have like these very firm structures around it, uh, structures that separate bodies, structures that separate performers and audience structures that separate what happens in the concert hall from what happens outside of the concert hall. You know, on the one hand, manifesting a kind of devotion to sound, but again, only very particular kinds of sound. And on the other hand, a kind of fear of sound. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose for myself growing up, you know, partly being exposed at a certain point to jazz and to to the reality of jazz's commitment to sound and what matters in sound and the scenes that gather around jazz or gathered around it. But then sort of more generally through growing up at the moment of punk um, and then things like house music, techno, hip-hop, scenes where this fear of sound is not such a strong thing and people dive much more deeply and in a much more embodied way i would i would say 
into the possibilities of sound and being transformed by sound that sort of I found that intriguing and I also found that to some degree there were not very good accounts of why um, that happened, why these scenes are as important as, as they are to the people that are in them. Mm-hmm. You know, the standard account of kind of alternative music scenes tends to be a sociological one and the notion that there's a kind of ontology of sound that is cultivated in alternative music scenes and that the decisions that are made about what sounds are used how people are exposed to each other and to the sound within those scenes that those things are deliberate and they point to a kind of more fundamental aspect of being and that's what we're going to call a vibrational ontology in a very basic way. Music is an organization of sound, and sound is a particular form of vibration. And as we know from contemporary physics, but also a whole variety of religious traditions, when you look into what the universe is made of, one way of talking about it is that it's vibration. So therefore, When we think about music as representing decisions about how to play with waves, how to craft things with waves, with vibrations, um, music does have the possibility of asking ontological questions, of providing information about being, of exposing us or revealing being to us. And, you know, so that's one of the reasons that Kendrick Lamar quote is so important to me is that, you know, I just found it very striking and powerful and also kind of mysterious. Like, what what did Kendrick Lamar actually mean when he said, all, all that there really is, the only hope we have is vibrations. People don't understand how powerful that is. What What did he really mean by that? What could he mean? And I guess the simple thing would be just to ask Kendrick. But, you know, we also have the entire legacy of the Black Radical tradition and increasingly also the scholarship being done in Black studies in which ideas around a vibrational ontology and its relationship to Black music, Black cultural practice are being articulated in really powerful in interesting ways. I mean, the work of Fred Moten or Ashon Crawley for me would be two important places. Same with uh, Julian Henrique's work on mm-hmm. Jamaican sound systems, which I refer to repeatedly in the in the book. Those are real touchstones uh, for you, and and it led me to sit down with those books, which are you know incredible. Um, kind of compliments to the the book that you've written, and especially um, Sonic Bodies is so about like spaces, um, the spaces in which music is experienced, um, and and I think like the stuff that you said there about spaces is where where I'd want to kind of pick it up, like this idea that you know there are specific spaces that are appropriate to certain kinds of music is interesting to me. 
classical music being this kind of austere thing that happens in ceremonious spaces where bodies are separated from one another. And then you have the kind of like, you know, violent scene of something like a mosh pit or the joyous scene of something like dance hall. And like, yeah, this idea of trying to take maybe music out of, um, you know, dislocating it from its, its traditional spaces to some extent is to me an interesting thing that I see you not taking up directly in the book, but it's sort of hinted at. And like, specifically around the question of trying to because you, you mentioned like how how spaces are kind of crafted with waves the universe itself is composed perhaps of of waves or that's one way of thinking about it um you know the method you're using in the book is this like poetic philosophical one uh, but at the same time you're trying to find a language for conveying an experience of music that is tied to space and and also to like nature in particular to divinity and nature uh, in talking about indian raga for for example you're clearly trying to leave room for this kind of miraculous or magic thing uh to be experienced in a very real way which is you know kind of a tricky position to be in if you're writing in a tradition of cultural studies like you're keenly aware that a historical you say it like a historical or materialist analysis of music is sort of fearful of of magic uh distrusts it and so i wondered like in what ways are you trying to actively work through the fact that the sacred and miraculous aspects of music are things that kind of haunt the more material analysis of music like are the corporeal parts of it the spaces the instruments even the people that produce it like sacred things for you um and how do we bridge the material and the sacred when it comes to thinking about music yeah, no, that's a kind of key concern in the book. And, you know, when I, when I talk to people who love music and are either atheists or, or just materialists in general, and I sort of point out the sort of, I don't know, spiritual quality of music or the, I don't know, the, the way in which exposure to music means exposure to something beyond the self, beyond subjectivity. And, and usually what people say back to me is that I'm not really playing fair, <laughs> that it's, uh, it's cheating because I've caught them in a moment where their own love and awe of music, which recognizably is something that goes beyond their ordinary subjectivity, in which I've pointed to something that they don't have a language for describing within a secular materialist discourse, mm -hmm. but which the implications of which they don't want to face or they, they refuse to face. Mm. <laughs> for myself, I, I've never really had that kind of issue. I mean, I, as you know, like my earlier work was about drugs and psychedelics in relationship to literature. And so with psychedelics, you also have another situation in which you have a ostensibly materialist process of ingestion of a substance that then causes these effects that are, you know, shocking for any materialist kind of model of what subjectivity is, that these things happen, right. that we don't really have a model or a narrative for within a kind of desacralized modern scientific worldview but 
which when you pay attention to what indigenous cultures around the world, um, how they frame these things, uh, other people have very sophisticated languages, discourses, practices, frameworks for understanding those things. And in a way, that basic point struck me as being true of music as well. That if, you know, we have a kind of decentralized musical aesthetics that, um, you know, musicology uses to talk about enjoyment or pleasure or, you know, this word charm that Yankelevich, the sort of great, um, I don't know, philosopher of music uses, um, when he took in this book, Music and the Inef Ineffable. Um, and yet for Yankelevich, it, music remains essentially ineffable. Like you can never really get to what it is that is causing music to have this power over us. As soon as you start thinking about something like raga and listening to what raga musicians um, say and indeed what Indian philosophy has to say about music, sound and vibration, um, you find a much richer, I would say, and more compelling and integrative model for what music's effect on our psyches is and what the relationship between music, the psyche and the cosmos is. And to think of music as being defined in radically different ways by different cultures and that in fact there's a kind of politics of what music is allowed to be in our own society, in other societies and that politics is operative according to the worldview or cosmology that that society embraces or forbids too mm -hmm. such that you know this basic idea in Hindustani Raga that Raga is living souls you know the idea that the Raga musician actually manifests the spirit of the Raga in the room by performing the Raga and that that spirit is a kind of living entity the question whether or not that's true whether that is real or not is a cosmopolitical question mm. and I think that recognizing it as such and being open to, um, you know, indigenous, non-Western framings of what music is opens up ourselves up to different ways of understanding what the world is and different ways of taking care of ourselves and of the world. Yeah, no, and and I, I mean, there's so much there, but the one thing I wanted to gesture to is this, like, incredible moment toward the end of the book where you quote um bear from a, tri a formerly a tribe called red now hallucination saying that you know it's it's so much about just the rhythm he's specifically talking about a powwow the scene of the powwow where you know the rhythm is this thing as he says that makes you stand up a little bit straighter um that experience of music i think is you know, to get to, uh, to jump ahead a little bit, universal, perhaps, you know, that, that feeling of um, being energized by uh, a piece of music and being sort of emboldened by it. 
um, is is something that's really powerful. Um, even if it is ineffable, the power is is palpable. And so, like, this is why I found the book so resonant. And in particular, like, toward the the introduction alone is. I mean, you can you can access it on Duke's Duke University Press's page. Um, I hope everybody will just you know sit down with the introduction. Uh, it it it's it's beautiful. It ends with this really passionate appeal to what music can do and has done for you. Um, you mention the death of your your friends Adam and Justin. I mean, you mention them a number of times in the book, but at the end of the introduction, you talk about how you know they were both musicians. I'm not trying to kind of pry into this painful part of the book too much, but I was kind of hoping that you could maybe talk about how much of the book is motivated by perhaps a, like a need to mourn those two figures in your life. You, you talk about how music was a thing that held them up the way that it, it has also held you up and that you're trying to understand that better. Um, and, and I mean, like, that's a thing where you're, you're not just trying to understand it for yourself. You're trying to understand it in this integrative way, uh, to use your term, and understand it in terms of a connection to others that is mediated by a love of music, right? Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, both Adam and Justin were part of this kind of experimental music scene in Toronto that I was part of. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to, to even really talk about other than to kind of feel their despair and their struggles with the place in which they live, which, you know, is basically settler, colonial Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and the kind of disconnect with the land, if you like, mm. that living in a settler colonial space involves. And the kind of incredibly dense feeling of depression, of suffering that that produces, not only for the indigenous people who are dispossessed of the land, but I think also for the settler colonial culture itself that has no meaningful relation to the land and whose... Um, whose culture then is a struggle with that sense of a lack of meaning and of um, the kind of, I don't know what, terror mm. that uh, generated this sort of steal stealing of the land. Mm. And somehow to play music in that context and to, to play music is in some sense to explore that settler colonial context. And usually it is not stated as such. Usually, mm. you know, indie music scenes tend to talk in sort of emo language or various languages of existential alienation about the situation in which young people make music, say. Mm. And yet my feeling was over time. And I, I shared that feeling too. I shared that feeling of not being able to make sense of the place in which I lived and the deep feeling of sort of sadness and depression that it produced in me and my being attracted to music scenes where in some ways that sense of alienation was articulated. And mm -hmm. I think both Justin and Adam 
in different ways their music articulated that and the whole sort of i don't know what rat drifting scene in toronto in the early 2000s you know was very much about on the one hand tuning into that sense of alienation and then also somehow trying to open up some kind of space of healing some kind of space of reconciliation without necessarily having the language in which to do that and in a way that's the narrative of the my book is sort of mm-hmm. moving you know from these encounters with someone like Pran Nath uh, or Catherine Krista Hennix and then uh, listening to the music of DJ Screw towards this encounter with a tripod red at the end of the book and conversations with Bear Witness and actually in the end recognizing as indigenous activists keep screaming at us that it finally is the land that matters mm. and that in a sense it is the vibration of the land which um, generates music and in a place of dispossession a place of alienation the music uh, reflects that but it can also uh, with consciousness with activism with I'm not sure what because it's a prospective process it's something that is being Mm. worked out in the music people are making today and will be making in the future what an unalienated uh music a music of reconciliation of repair and healing would actually sound like Mm -hmm. i mean you're so inside these ideas i would say like these are not just um theoretical frameworks this is like a methodology for living or something um and to that point you know i wanted to talk about how a kind of major theme in the politics of vibration is you coming back to moments of almost epiphany where you were changed by listening to compositions by particular people you know i wanted to talk about sort of the almost autoethnographic nature of the book um but you know I guess I wanted to check in with you, though, about a a kind of hypothesis you make first. Like, you say that when we listen to music, we feel, and feeling is a kind of change. But when the music stops, we return to some degree to the familiar shape of our psyche. But then you write, or do we? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And there's a beautiful ambivalence about the extent to which sort of music changes us. Like, you know it changes us, that it alters our brains, but you, you seem to wonder whether when you enter into this kind of dreamlike state, for example, that music can put you in, um, whether you think it changes us in a lasting way. And, and so I related to a lot of things you say about sound in the text, but especially this idea that, you know, for example, anger and frustration can kind of melt away because of music. And it can also probably be, you know, produced by it. But I really like the way that you talked about not wanting that melting away to end. And so much uh, about the book is interested in musics that experiment with length, breadth, uh, volume, a kind of unending reverberation. Um, And I wondered if you could talk about that yearning that you describe in the book. How is it part of your pursuit of a state of both being liberated and possessed by music? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the key to the tension you're talking about between that sense of being, you know, captured or enraptured by music, but then the music ending, um, and what to do about that is is to see that as a, a as a political problem. And I think for me, it was really my association with Catherine Krista Hennix, um, Swedish mathematician, philosopher, musician, composer, um, that gradually helped me to understand that the kind of uh, context, the, the way in which music happens in a society is a political issue and a political problem. And for Hennix, as a composer of drones and someone who's interested in performances that go on for a really long time, and in fact, I think if she had her way, music would just be permanently there. Mm. And in fact, like in her house, uh, there is a drone that's just playing 24-7. And mm. for her, music isn't something that, you know, you tidily bracket between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. and then you go back to ordinary life. Right. Really, music should be there. Vibration should be there 24-7. And at different points in the day, you should be able to come back to it, re-engage with it. Maybe you have to go away for a while, but then you come back and it's there again. And she used this kind of, to me, fascinating formula that the ethics of a society can be measured according to how much space and time they actually will accord to music. Mm. You can't have these deeper experiences of music without a kind of increased exposure to music and an increased exposure not just to the performance of music, but to the practice of music, to music as a research project, and I would say also to music as a social and political, as a collective project. Hennix's ideas, which come you know, mostly from an experimental composer's point of view, even though Hennix herself grew up in Stockholm in a household um, where jazz musicians like Eric Dolphy or Idris Suleiman lived. And so she was very much kind of exposed as a kid to the culture of jazz. It seems to me that the idea of a life immersed in music happens in different ways in different cultures. And weirdly, even though we live in a culture that professes to be obsessed by music, like those deeper experiences of music really tend to be parceled out via concerts and gigs or club nights in quite kind of limited ways. And it, do, it doesn't need to be that way. You have to want it to not be that way. And you have to imagine that a richer, more meaningful life could be there if music was placed in the center of things rather than as kind of alienated entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting then that something like the Jamaican Sound System session, um, and Henriquez captures so well the sort of love and care with which the sound system is crafted. 
Like it's a very rich and complex ecosystem. That notion that one could ask for a lot more from music, that other people have done that, that the world of recordings and, and gigs, it doesn't have to end there and to find ways to deepen our relationship to sound and deepen our exposure to what's joyful and powerful in sound. Mm. I love that. And and it's certainly the case that, you know, the figure that maybe looms the largest in your book is is Hennix. Um, there's like, you know, there are these moments where you, you talk about listening to something she created and entering into this dreamlike state and snapping out of that trance. You know, Hennix is a model for how to make music kind of enter the body for you how to use it as meditation, but I also just found the chapter that specifically focuses on Hennix to be the most challenging in the book. I mean, For in sure. that chapter, you know, you're talking a lot about the mathematics of vibration. I've never been a math guy. Um, and yet, you know, I'm super interested in this idea that, and it makes sense, you know, as you say, musical events take the form of a pattern, often a very complex one. You say that it's usually so complex it can't be like computed by any existing sort of form of software or machine learning. This is something incidentally that uh, Ashan Crawley, Crawley talks about too in Black Pentecostal Breath. You know, he talks about how he got upset with his friend telling him that a computer program could perfectly capture the way that Art Tatum plays. He basically calls bullshit on his friend and says it's more complicated than it sounds. And I liked how, you know, to that end, you suggest a thought exercise to the reader. Um, that, that has us trying to grasp all of the sonic formations across time and space, the continuum of sound, as you put it. You're saying like, okay, you think it's such a simple thing. Well, try to come up with a formula for this, all of the sound in the universe undifferentiated. Um, and I guess, you know, I was hoping that you could not simplify it because it's not simple, but sort of talk about how dealing with Hennix's notion that at a certain point, and I'm quoting you again, music was artificially separated from mathematics and became the, the almost exclusive domain of the liberal arts. Like how does engaging with that idea expand our sense of the, like the complexity, the power of sound for you? Yeah, well, I have to say, first of all, that it was really challenging for me too. <laughs> I was mm -hmm. actually rereading that chapter this this morning and, and just sort of thinking about it. And, you know, Hennix teaches mathematics at the university level and her own mathematical research is at a pretty advanced level, although it's also quite esoteric in the sense that her own views on mathematics are hardly traditional or conservative views. Mathematics isn't simply a kind of um, pre-established set of dogma or scientific facts, and that's all it is. Like there are real disputes within mathematics about fundamental questions like what a number is, like um, when you have a line going between zero and one, whether there's any end to the number of divisions in the line you can make, and and so on and so on. And um, so when we're talking about Hennix and mathematics, like you have to understand that the, her own path through mathematics was a fairly radical one, 
and that she sort of also admired these very radical figures like Brouwer, Grotendieck, Lover, who were really important figures in the history of mathematics, um, but who, who themselves were involved in dispute. Hmm. Um, so, and having said that, that as a mathematician, Hennix in some ways applied some of her own thinking about math to music. So my own kind of friendship with Hennix has been a kind of apprenticeship in a way where as someone who also hadn't really studied math since high school, um, I wanted to try to understand what she was doing with that, how she saw that and how for her music emerged in relationship to mathematics. Mm. And, you know, obviously music is a pattern. There's a periodicity to music. Music has measurable patterns, for example, certain kinds of rhythm. It also involves pitches that can be measured and relationships between pitches. And those natural harmonics have a basis in mathematics in that you can express the relationships of notes via ratios or, or relationships of integers, whole numbers. But what Hennix then does is to go beyond the traditional pitch relationships that you might find in, say, Indian classical music, but look much more generally at the possibility of different kinds of pitch relationships that still are mathematically sound in different ways, but which have maybe never been heard before. One of her most interesting pieces to me involved somehow the resonant frequencies of electrons circulating the nucleus of the hydrogen atom and turning those uh, the ratios of those resonances into uh, a musical scale, a musical set of pitches, and then playing that with the idea that since hydrogen composes, I don't know what, 60-70% of the universe, that somehow this resonance, these relationships would actually be familiar to us, but in a very uncanny way. So that would be one part of it. I think the other part of it would be this fascination with the one. And mm. um, one of her groups in the early 70s is called the Deontic Miracle. And her idea was, can you come up with a set of rules or principles by which you can generate a miracle? Hmm. And it's a paradox. Like, it's like yeah. the, the logical order shouldn't lead to something in excess of itself. This kind of integral accident, to use a weird phrase from Paul Virilio, where, you know, this you know, he imagines a technology producing, uh, you know, as an inevitability, this kind of accident, you know, what we're talking about instead is a kind of, um, or what I, what I take you to be talking about is, you know, human beings using instruments in a way that is intentional, but that necessarily produces this kind of, um, yeah, to use your term excess. And a lot of the book too, is about sort of the, um, the unintended, effects of noise um and and on that point like i think it's interesting to to just like mention the fact that because my my listeners are going to notice that on your end marcus like there's a lot of crackling um, oh yeah 
And I think it's like, I'm just guessing, but I think it's, you might be using like uh, earbuds with the microphone, like the wired microphone that hangs down. I'm just guessing. And then yeah, maybe it's like right. rubbing against some part of your clothing and it's like, oh, no. you know, <laughs> yeah. But here's the funny thing. Like I thought about, Hey, uh, just, I'm not even going to mention it. Right. We'll just, we'll just ignore it and we'll press on. But then there are moments where it's crackling quite a bit. And in the, you know, it made me think about this, this still pretty um, influential theory in communication studies, the uh, so-called Shannon Weaver model, uh, which talks a lot about noise as this thing that necessarily interrupts and distorts the signal. You know, Claude Shannon and Warren Weaver were both mathematicians and like engineers and scientists, right? So their theory is not really about the kind of spiritual or affective elements of sound. It's purely about what interrupts the message. And in podcasting, that's definitely something that I've had to like work on and think about is like, how do, you know, um, how to balance uh, clarity and, you know, clear communication with like uh, this indeterminacy that comes from recording in different spaces and and with different people in in remote places and all that kind of stuff. Um, And to me, like, you know, so, (laughs) you know, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that my lessons or listeners are definitely going to pick up on this sort of crackling effect that will be part of the the, the signal, right? Necessarily. Um, and for some of some people, that crackling is going to be a thing that makes them potentially switch off, right? That's just a part of the situation, which made me, you know, this got me thinking about this really great story that you tell in the book where you describe your appreciation for um, South African, is it Vuvuzelas? These yeah, that's right. Sing, these single tone trumpets that are often used by like huge groups at football matches, and like you talk about how you savored the way that these trumpets aggravated Western viewers who were kind of, you know, who weren't attuned to this wall of sound, and and like so you know that's and it's something that you hear through like the distorted signal of a of a TV set, and you you say like you you love the way in which like that was aggravating to people um, because it, it does sort of interrupt this presumed clarity uh, that we expect from everyday life. Um, you know, it takes a, a high degree of like patience a lot of the time to listen certainly to, to noise and distortion and the texture of it to gain a, an appreciation for it. But you are a person that has an appreciation for that, right? Well, I think, you know, in, in sound studies in recent years, there have been propositions that we should just actually abandon the word noise entirely because mm. the word noise mostly describes a set of prejudices about what constitutes acceptable sound or meaningful sound versus mm. non-meaningful sound. And... You know, that that is totally the case with the Vuvuzelas where, you know, the people who hated that sound and the intrusion of it, um, there was a kind of racism involved in it and a a kind of um, refusal to hear the kind of sonic joy of a collective of people at this soccer match making Mm -hmm. this joyous sound together. And to me... it was a joyous sound and a lot of what is called noise. I mean, I I understand the precise definition of noise within 
communication studies, but um, in in music, a lot of what gets called noise is not really noise. It's just something that's a little bit outside of the normative range of pitches and sounds by which people define music. You know, opening up to a much broader universe of sounds and including those sounds in what we call music seems like a fairly easy thing to do. Like I, I was, what you said made me think about Pharaoh Sanders a little bit. And oh, yeah. Hennix loved this thing Pharaoh Sanders said about the Nawa, the Moroccan kind of Sufi trance musicians. Sanders said that when he played with the Nawa, that what impressed him is that they would carry on with the sound they were playing until they achieved the state the ecstatic state that they were looking for with the sound and that they would play until that happened and once they hit that then they could go on to the next step and the next stage and for Hennix it was a beautiful example of a kind of teleological approach to music that you know you keep making the sound you keep making the noise until the one emerges from from her point of view and that mm. you you keep working towards that miracle and the musicians in a way know that they know how to invoke the miracle even though you always have to do it in the moment no yeah i hear that and and the uh, it's interesting you mentioned pharaoh sanders because you know um sam shepherd who releases music under the name floating points talks about this one Pharaoh Sanders uh, piece called love is everywhere, which is just intoxicating. And he says like when he's DJing, he'll put that on at a specific moment and people to his astonishment will dance to it. It's challenging, but at the same time, it shouldn't be such a shock because as you say, it's this intuitive thing of trying to know like well, people are winding down a little bit. Let's give them a jolt. Let's give them something that tells them love is everywhere, but also communicates the idea in resonance and rhythm that love is everywhere. So, I mean, like Pharaoh Sanders, um, of course, just died at the end of uh, September at the age of 81, yeah. but left us with, he came back for a recording with Floating Points on this widely acclaimed album, Pro- Promises. Um which I didn't love immediately. You know, that is an album that I learned to love through repeated listenings. Um, and and be, mostly because it seemed like incongruous. You had this guy in, in, in Pharaoh Sanders that um, had this very emotional approach to free jazz that was alienating to some musicians in the jazz establishment at a certain point and floating points whose music is like a little bit sterile. Like it's not particularly emotional. And yet, something about it clearly worked for people. And I think, you know, Pharaoh Sanders entered into people's consciousness in part through the promises album. Um, I wondered if you, if you had an appreciation for that record or. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, that record, um, which dropped somewhere during the middle of the COVID pandemic, Mm -hmm. it was kind of like a blessing that, allowed so many of us to kind of sustain ourselves and carry on living during the pandemic. You know, what's so moving about it, and I think what struck so many people was this kind of intense 
tenderness mm-hmm. with which um, Vera Sanders plays on that recording that you have Sam Shepard's sort of Alice Coltrane-ish little loops of sound, which which are nice. But then you have like this very delicate, tender playing by Pharaoh that spoke to this moment where I think, um, I talk about it a little bit in, in my book in the DJ Screw chapter where I talk about how when you're extremely depressed, sound really impinges on you. Mm-hmm. Like sound can really feel like it, it sort of prickles almost if it's the wrong sound. But that the black radical tradition and particularly the tradition of kind of 60s, 70s soul and soul jazz cultivated these very lush, beautiful, gentle forms of... Um, I don't know how to put it, just uh, kindness, gentleness, supportiveness that would allow people to live in intolerable conditions and sustain themselves. And um, I think it's kind of interesting that that music, which is always sort of coming back in different ways, would reappear almost miraculously during the COVID pandemic and the Pharaoh would be part of that. Yeah, it felt like a gift. Yeah, and an improbable one. It had that sort of miracle quality that the greatest music really has where something appears, a piece of music, a pattern in sound that is unimaginable and yet is realized. And that is the kind of uh, glory of music, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um. And yeah, I mean, uh, um, the pandemic, as you say in the coda to the book, has kind of irreparably broken in a lot of different ways our relationship to the ties of life. I mean, one of the things that you've pointed out is that this great pause meant a slowing down of lived time, a stopping of time for for millions of people, uh, and a shift in our relationship to sound and vibration as well. Um, and And on the point that you know, it's, it's, um, it's a kind of palliative thing. It's a gift. It, it, it can also be something that can be, can be painful. I mean, you, you talk about the sort of temporality that comes out of experiencing a painful breakup at one point in the book, you, you, you say that like in these moments, time can expand to an excruciating degree. I think that's so like vivid and relatable. Uh, and I was hoping we could spend a, a little bit of time on it, uh, without maybe getting, I guess a little too self-indulgent in a sense. I mean, that on that point of self-indulgence, I mean, you're you're talking about how a breakup can be a moment of illumination and a source of narcissistic deflation, because you know that I think that's very true. It's both things. Has that been your experience at all when it comes to those specific moments of a kind of excruciating dilation of time? Was some music too powerful? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in the book, I'm talking about a break up a kind of both long-term and long-distance relationship I was involved in that that came to an end, I guess, in 2005. And then um, going to this Sun concert in Brooklyn. And in a way, it was exactly what you're saying, that I wasn't really prepared for it. And I was kind of too raw, too emotionally exposed. 
And so going to this sun show, I don't know, it was like this kind of incredible black light or white light that I felt completely overwhelmed by. Um, and yet, in that that sort of raw state, it also made total sense to me, this kind of very heavy, sluggish, grinding repetition. Uh, I was actually kind of amazed when I listened to the recordings of that show, which I, I think were released as something like White by, by Sun, um, because it, it was sort of unrecognizable compared to how it felt when I was actually listening to it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think what I was just saying about impingement really implies in those, applies in those moments too, uh, that when you are kind of emotionally torn apart or broken open, um, what you can expose yourself to in terms of sound and vibration is uh, you have to be very careful in a, in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, you could say it the other way that music is about love <laughs> because there is some kind of resonance between the kind of exposure and vulnerability of love and our exposure and vulnerability when it comes to sound and vibration as well. That kind of vulnerability, that possibility of allowing ourselves a state of indifferentiation and of jouissance or pleasure connected to indifferentiation is really there. And it's, it's dangerous. I mean, it, apparently it's so dangerous that for a lot of people, they just say, that's not true. It doesn't even exist. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting description of what music, sound, and vibration do to us, that they, they gently do allow for this undifferentiated state, you know, which then someone like Hennix in her work gives a more specific mathematical and spiritual meaning to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, uh, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. I don't know how much more you have to give. I'm, I'm okay. Okay. Well, I mean, in part, I say that because the book is about time. Like, it's about how we don't have enough of it, uh, both in this conversation and in everyday life. It's a, it's a major motivating thing in your analysis. You want to look for recordings and experiences of live music that kind of short circuit our contemporary capitalist time regime in really blunt ways. You say that there are, that we're in the midst of a time war. Um, and what, what is so interesting to me about this, this war, it, it comes up a lot in the uh, DJ screw chapter two is like, it isn't a metaphor. It's it, like, we are in a battle for our time, our freedom, our pleasure in the face of a regime that you say, blocks the flourishing of other forms of life and it got i mean in, in in thinking about what to ask you about this question of of you know music as a as it were a kind of weapon in a time war which to use very kind of aggressive uh, terms i was thinking about my colleague l jones who for a long time uh, had a radio show called the black power hour where she would take requests from incarcerated folks and she'd sometimes get complaints and criticisms about like the kinds of songs that that meant she had to play on the radio because of mostly the language in the songs. But for her, 
These were people whose time was stolen from them, and the least she could do was provide them some relief in the form of hearing the song they wanted to hear. Um, so I, I guess I wondered if you could like expand on this idea of music as a as a tool in a time war and how and maybe connect it to this other idea in the book that's so important of you know target states, right? Because the idea in part is that music is is it alleviates something, you know, that it, that it it can uh, be goal oriented in that way of trying to you know reach a point of enlightenment or reach a point of of freedom, and and you know I, I guess like in terms of thinking about the time war and the, the the power of music in these spaces, these kind of highly bordered spaces, could you speak to what some of the target states typically are in your research? Why they're important and why in your reading those target states are, especially for so-called modern folks, like seem to be dangerous. Like we don't believe in target states in terms of like the commercial appreciation of music. And yet you seem to be suggesting those states are still there. They're just kind of repressed or sublimated or forgotten. Am I sort of reading you correctly there? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a way it goes back to the anecdote about Pharaoh that that I spoke about a little while ago, where he says, you know, what's fascinating about the Nawa musicians and their attitude towards music is that they'll keep playing the music they're playing until the target state that interests them is achieved. And for them, playing music is inseparable from that idea of a target state, you know, that of a certain um deity or spirit entering the room that of a certain psychic state or a collective state of enjoyment what how, however that particular target state is defined but that the musicians play with a view to generating invoking inviting that target state to happen mm-hmm. and i just think it's very interesting that you know, in Hindustani raga, that is an uncontroversial thing to talk about, that the raga is a kind of living spirit that enters the room when you play correctly. And the musicians, you can't, it's not mechanical. It's not simply a matter of just kind of cranking out a pattern. It's improvisational within the moment how that might actually come into being. And, you know, you could say the same thing in a club situation or let's say a Jamaican dance hall situation where the DJ, the selector um, is playing a series of records. But this kind of intuiting of and participation in the kind of uh, collective joy of the assembled dancers and responding to that in a particular way with a particular sequence of tracks and ruptures and breaks between tracks such that the audience also gets higher, gets into this ecstatic state. There is some sense of a target state there. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's interesting that that seems to be more lacking in the Western classical tradition it's so interesting to me with DJ Screw that here you have a kind of major innovator and figure within hip hop, but I would also say within 20th century music 
generally, whose work basically consisted in slowing tracks down and introducing certain kinds of breaks, ruptures, and repetitions there. And the question, you know, and it comes up in the articles that were written about DJ Screw while he was alive and the articles and the recent biography of DJ Screw that Lance Scott Walker just published, you know, it still remains kind of a mystery as to what it means to slow down music that way. Everyone who heard it, uh, the first time they heard it, these sort of young people in Houston, they would just think that there was something wrong with the tape deck they yeah. they had yeah, yeah. or the, the, the tape was broken or something. And they right. would be like, this is just wrong. And then they would listen to it a bit longer and Screw would tell them, just keep keep listening. Mm-hmm. And then they would say, yeah, I get it. It's really power. I get it. I'm, now I like it. And then they couldn't go back and other music sounded too quick. Yeah, because it provided a kind of fundamental break with the time regime that they were living in. Right. And, you know, for, for the most part, the time regime that we live in doesn't announce itself as such. We're interpolated by it, you know, in a hundred different ways, whether it's our iPhones or a particular schedule for work or, or, you know, in the case of people who are in prison, the, the time regime of the prison. And a lot of Screw's own emceeing on the tapes that he would make consists of shout-outs to those who were absent, those who'd gotten killed, those who were doing time. And so there's a very strong and conscious sense of time, of waiting, of endurance uh, in Screw's music, I think. And it, you know, it wouldn't be too hard to pull out in terms of the black radical tradition, um, a whole way of thinking about working with time such that one makes a break with a suffocating, literally suffocating time regime, mm. and how a lot of the time that's not even possible, but that the music aspires to what otherwise might be impossible. You know, can one think about being without time? Like, is is music actually telling us something else about what we think time is? In fact, I'm actually working on a book now with Hennix that will kind of elaborate her ideas about space and the a kind of magic of space, which in my book is sort of linked to this word topos mm-hmm. and Hennix's idea of topos as a space in which a transformation of one state to another can happen and of music as a vector of transformation and and you know this is the case that you know this your book the politics of vibration is like equally interested in the mathematics of musical complexity and its use as a kind of insurgent source of joy in our contemporary time war its connection to the erotic and these things i want to ask you about time and space compression in the era of streaming music and the internet. I mean, this is something that isn't, you don't condemn it outright per se. And it is the case that you can, you can see in black Pentecostal breath, Crawley pulling up a YouTube video of a sermon and, and, and having this almost out of body experience watching it. You know, you talk about the comments on DJ screw tracks on YouTube and how there's this like 
developing community around just, you know, mutual appreciation of it. It is the case that there's something, there is some potential in it. But like, I also take the point that you make in the book that the rise of things like Spotify, these so-called platforms, they might expose us to more music, but they take away a lot of the social aspects of music. Um, In fact, you say like it's becoming, music's becoming a more dumbed down, commodified abbreviation of what it might otherwise be. And like in the era of TikTok, especially, that is so apparent. I mean, you know, TikTok reduces music down to the smallest snip of of some song, but it also encourages a sort of participatory relationship to music. So like you're definitely, you're not saying these technologies take away the ability to uh, experience the astonishing and nourishing qualities of music. But if I'm reading you right, you're also suggesting that at least the diversity of musical expressions isn't really facilitated by digital music in the way that we sometimes assume it is. Is that is that more or less fair? I mean, you do the work, for example, in the book of trying to recommend pretty obscure recordings and to and to you know teach people how to find them. That's because this this idea of algorithms providing you every song ever, which is that Ben Ratliff book, it's a little bit of a fa- false promise, right? It's 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 the the platforms are not wide open in the way that they're claimed to be. No, I think that's right. I mean, you know, at a basic level, our experience of digital music is uh, of alienation and separation, I think. You know, despite the rhetoric of community and friends and followers and everything that, that happens. And insofar as music is really limited to what we hear on headphones, what we watch on our iPhones, and especially, you know, I think everything Virilio said about speed and politics is probably true. <laughs> you know, that the speeding of everything up, including the consumption of music, um, is a politics and it evacuates a certain kind of agency. Where the danger lies, there the healing power grows too. And um, but music isn't simply the maintenance of a set of kind of organic local traditions. To follow up on that, I think I just want to say I appreciate you writing this book. It's it's really um, one of the most. It's a really it's captivating because there is this like clear through line about music. Uh, as I say, you're so inside these ideas um, that the you know you just kind of. The, the, the reader can kind of breathe into them in a way that uh, feels more than just academic, more than just philosophical, feels lived and embodied, which I really like. And, and you kind of, you know, you move toward a place in the book of trying to aspire toward a kind of universality, which, as you say, is like kind of a dangerous proposition today. Um, but at the same time, I think it's it's beautiful how you articulate it. It's like you're acknowledging the universality in music and, and in politics and economics and, and in, in so many aspects of human life has been um, a form of like despotism. And yet you're you're saying at the same time you yearn for something like universality and wonder how music can offer a path to it. Um, and to me, that you know, the kind of universality you're articulating is one I can get behind a kind of anti-colonial, anti-capitalist universality that says there is this time regime in the world that wants to extract a feeling of connection and joy 
and that we want it back. Um, so to me, that's beautiful. And uh, I really appreciate you talking to me about these ideas. It's been a treat. Yeah, well, thank you, Scott, too. And thank you for reading my book carefully. And it's, it's a real pleasure to actually get to chat about the ideas. Um, and, you know, I mean, mostly I just feel grateful to the musicians who shared their thoughts and ideas with me over the years. I feel truly blessed. Um, I, I have real confidence in the music itself globally to actually uh, gesture towards this possibility of some other kind of universality that is mediated through sound, through vibration.